podcast for January 14th, 2009. Um, happy to welcome back my regular panel, uh, two of whom are sitting next to me here. We're uh, recording this show from a suite at uh, Encore Las Vegas on the Las Vegas Strip. So um, to my right, Chuck Monster from VegasTripping.com. Hey, Chuck. How's it going, man? Good. And sitting across from me, I have David McKee from the Las Vegas Advisor. Hey, David. Hi. Sipping a, a $12.50 uh, win Encore beverage. <laughs> On the phone, unfortunately, they cannot be with us. We have Dave Schwartz from UNLV Center for Gaming Research. Good afternoon, Dave. You're in Atlantic City, is that right? I am, and I've not been comped a dime for anything. Excellent. <laughs> well, we'll have to change although, although I do get to spend a weekend at the Grand Hotel in Cape May later on, but I have to work for it. I'm teaching a creative writing workshop, so that is not a comp. All right. Well... You know, <clears throat> do what you can. And, of course, last but not least, Jeff Simpson from the Las Vegas Sun in, in Business Las Vegas. Hey, Jeff. Gentlemen, I'm drinking a 7-Up uh, at my desk. Um, I paid less than a dollar for it, and I remember when Wynn opened in 2005, 7-Ups were uh, 7 bucks from the uh, in-room refrigerators. Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't even want to know what the in-room beverages cost in this little <laughs> fridge. Chuck's, I think, going to go on a recon mission here. Do not remove any item for more than 60 seconds. <laughs> Um, okay, so um, for anyone that uh, is listening, uh, hopefully the sound quality is okay. We sort of had a hodgepodge, a live-slash-phone combination. We're going to do our best here. Um, our schedule is a little bit looser than it normally is, but there's a couple things that we do want to talk about. Um, we may go second to uh, to the topic of Encore, but first, since I think, Dave, you have to leave us, let's talk about, about Harris. Um, Harris Entertainment this week announced that they're going to be shutting down construction on the Octavius Tower at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. Uh, I believe, uh, as, as David posted on his blog, they do intend to finish the shell of the building so it will look somewhat finished from the exterior. But this is yet another a suggestion that the health of these uh, gaming companies um, isn't really not you know, where, where they would like it to be. Um, how serious is this for Harris? And I guess what I want to know is, is, is this – uh, the first of several unfortunate announcements from them. I mean, people have talked about Chapter 11 for Harris in the past. Um, obviously, this is a very material sign that things aren't going well. Um, are we, you know, how worried are we about Harris at this point? And um, is this more than just a just an announcement of uh, stopping construction? What do you guys think? Start with whomever. Well, I'll jump in here because I'm on the phone. Uh, I. Obviously, I haven't seen the balance sheet, so I don't know exactly what they're facing, but it's definitely not a good sign. And we're really, what I think is really disturbing about this is the, well, first of all, the name Octavius Tower. Uh, I think it was a bad name in the first place because he wasn't called Octavius. He was called Octavian Augustus. So that just shows a lack of historical inquiry or whatever you want to call it. But that notwithstanding, you would think there was all of this high-end uh, prod, uh, product coming online, you know, with Win, Encore, Aria coming up, all that. They that Harris would want to have several really nice rooms to be able to keep their high rollers. So when a host from Aria calls up somebody who's been playing at Caesars or at Paris for a while and says, "Hey, why don't you come over?" They have a counter offer and say, "No, I've got a brand new room at the Octavius Tower." So it's kind of disturbing that they're not finishing these rooms, I think, and if they, if it was just an occupancy issue, if I was them, maybe I would finish these rooms and then quietly 
not staff one of the other towers as much. So that's my two cents. Is there? Did anybody notice a dollar figure attached, a cost savings attached to deferring this? I mean, is it in the hundreds of millions of dollars? It's definitely in the hundreds of millions that they have budgeted to spend this year. Um, so I don't know what percentage of, of that would be saved by, you know, still continuing to work on uh, the exterior and uh, delaying the uh, outfitting. But, you know, a fairly significant amount of that expense would be um, the soft goods and hard goods inside the room, you know, whether it's the, you know, couple flat panels, including, you know, the bathroom and the main one, um, all the the plumbing, the plumbing fixtures, the marble, all the soft goods, you know, the carpeting and drapes and mattresses and, and all that kind of stuff, plus the upholstered furniture. I mean, you run into, you know, in the, now it's not that big of a tower. I think if I remember correctly, it's 660 or something rooms. But, you know, multiply that times, you know, 100,000 to 300,000 or whatever per room, and it's probably more than that. Wynn was a, was a million per room, um, you know, or Encore was. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a fairly significant number. Um, so, you know, there's, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll definitely save a couple hundred million bucks or de- delay it, defer it. Right. I mean, you know, and it, not, not to get off on another topic, but I mean, you know, we're not this, they're not the only ones on that, you know, near vicinity that are going to be, uh, that are sort of trying to paint this deferment of cost as a major positive. Now the situation with MG and Mirage at the Harmon is not the same, but in both cases, these companies went into these endeavors hoping that these, these would make them hundreds of millions of dollars, and they're now trying to claim that the fact that they're not doing it is even better than, than doing it in the first place. Which is similar than that is similar to Boyd's decision. I mean, you know, that, that sometimes discretion is the better part of valor. I think that, you know, right now, Wall Street is going to look favorably, not that Harris has to worry about Wall Street, but people look, are going to look favorably on being conservative with the spending of, the, of money and trying, their, trying um, your best as an operator to somehow pay down debt or, in Harris' case, at least stay within the covenants and uh, pay off your debt. Jeff, when you mentioned when you uttered the word "boy," both Hunter and Chuck instinctively turned and looked at the skeleton of Echelon, which is isn't that nice? That's the nice thing about doing the doing the show on site. You get a pretty good view over there. Yeah, where it's right outside the window. <clears throat> now, if you see trucks moving around the Echelon site, uh, don't get your hopes up. I asked Boyd about that, and they said they're just policing up bits and pieces of the project. So, I mean, with with the situation with um, with Harris, uh, you know, MG Mirage has, well, they're, whether forced into or decided to engage in asset sales. I mean, we know about Treasure Island. Rumors are rampant about other other property sales, but we don't see that same kind of speculation about Harris, even though they're clearly not in a completely healthy state of financial condition. Well, I, I think we do. I, I think that there's really only one property that folks are speculating on, and it's the Rio. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, and that property is, you know, certainly highly speculated on. I think, you know, the problem for Harris is there's no other market outside of Las Vegas that it seems like their properties are in such, 
you know that there that there is potentially high demand. Harris has properties all over the place. I'm sure Harris would gladly liquidate, you know, say Harvey's in Reno or in Lake Tahoe, or you know, one of its properties in in markets where they have a couple. Um, but there, it's just not a buyer's market. It's tough. It's not just Las Vegas. People don't have money, and uh, you know, Harris is absolutely eager to sell. It's just that, you know, there aren't that many folks with cash on hand. Yeah, I would think for, at least for Atlantic City, because I'm sitting in Atlantic City and thinking about it, you know, you would think that maybe if Penn National can't get the Mirage or another property in Vegas, they would want to roll the dice and go for the showboat or another one of the properties in, uh, the Harris properties in Atlantic City, which I guess would probably be either showboat or Bally's, because they probably wouldn't give up Harris or uh, Caesars. So I don't know. Besides them, I can't think of anybody who would want to even buy a, a property here, given that the revenues have gone down, and you're going to have the Revel Project coming online in a couple of years anyway with, with better competition. So who knows? One, one thing that you might um, and you know you, that you might want to consider um, for Harris. I mean, they, people always treat you know they talk about Harris as if it's the same somehow as MGM Mirage and um, the other, you know, the Las Vegas Sands, Wynn, and MGM Mirage, those are companies that um, sort of, they want, they try and get a whole robust cash on a bunch of different revenue lines from players. They're talking about hotel revenue, you know, room rates. They're talking about um, big restaurant checks, getting money on the entertainment side, getting money on the, you know, on the uh, um, nightclub side, as well as on the gaming floor. Harris, even though they have offerings in all those on, on all those revenue lines, um, it's it's a company that really is gaming focused. Um, it's very similar to um, the locals casinos here in Las Vegas, where and and sort of the old school style of casino operations, where all of the other revenue lines are intended to support um, the the gaming um, the gaming draw. And Harris, um, with the exception of maybe uh, you know Paris. And uh, and Caesar's Palace, um, you know the the big chunk of their money comes from gambling, and so Harris, unlike these other companies, you know Harris is really in trouble um, in terms of how the this bad economy affects them because you know people who might you know limit their gambling budget but still make a trip to Las Vegas, that's the worst thing for Harris. You know they don't want you know Harris. Um, card system total rewards feeds people into the market with a proven propensity to gamble and yet if those people come here and don't gamble all of a sudden you have people who are staying for free potentially eating free meals but certainly getting a free hotel room and not gambling at all that's the you know that means they're getting nothing out of these folks um you know MGM Mirage you know they tend to um you know, maybe they're cutting rates on their hotel rooms, getting, you know, 129 instead of 239 at Bellagio or whatever, you know, their most discounted rate would be. But those people are still buying meals, still going to shows. You know, the Harris people, the Harris customer is not the same. And so Harris is, I think, more a victim of this bad economy than it's uh, more um, – 
more diverse revenue sourced competitors? Well, that's definitely an interesting point. I, I mean, I think uh, at least from my perspective, not a surprise to get a real concrete example that Harris is in that is not in an integrated financial condition. I mean, it, out of all the companies, especially with their leveraged buyout situation and their incredible heavy debt load and the inability to refinance in the current economic condition, uh, you know, I, I was not at all surprised to see this. I'm actually a little bit surprised it didn't come sooner. Maybe they felt they had a little bit of cover given what happened with MGM Mirage and the Harmon last week, um, and they're being having, you know, deciding to cancel the condo component. But uh, I, I wasn't surprised to see this story at all. I mean, uh, I figured it was coming at some point. Well, Harris is, unlike MGM, which tends to move with great deliberation, Harris frequently strikes me as a company that doesn't think things through. Although, what putting the brakes on the Octavius Tower doesn't rank quite as high on the embarrassment scale as the way that both the, the, the different ways that the Harmon and the St. Regis had the rug pulled out from under them. With Harris, how about the fact that they can't decide whether they want to change the name of the company or not? That right. seems totally bizarre. Like, what are, you know, what's your company called then? What, you know, what's your focus? Or the, or the reorganization of the company around its three supposedly core brands, Caesars, Harris, and Horseshoe. That was that has been very half-heartedly uh, executed. It just, you know, it makes you wonder, has this buyout situation just been such a distraction for that company that it's been sort of thrown off all of these initiatives that it was developing to try and, you know, take the company into the next, you know, decade? Well, and it totally was. I mean, that you hit the nail on the head there, Hunter. Um, you know, had the economy stayed robust, um, Harris would be, you know, building a horseshoe on the strip, probably having imploded a one, the older of the Bally's towers, um, would have um, been in the midst of, uh, you know, doing its redevelopment on the east side of the strip, getting close to, you know, in the, in the midst of building an arena. Um, There's just so many things that would have been going on and, uh, you know, that they had spent incredibly big to prepare for. Um, but, you know, the... Uh, you know the uh, economy did not cooperate with their big plans, um, but yeah, they you know they're they are uh, certainly in a world of hurt right now. Well, I think uh, you know that's definitely true, and um, I'm glad at least they're going to be finishing the exterior, so we don't have a complete unsightly mess sitting there at that critical intersection. But you know, it's just another sign that that uh, the industry, the um, the industry that supposedly can survive all economic conditions is being hit incredibly hard. Um, that that uh, that maxim has been completely shattered, obviously, in this last in this last year. Um, moving on to uh, to something semi-related, the property across from Win Las Vegas, the New Frontier Land, which was purchased at a record high price, um, that has sit, sat vacant. There were some rumors again surrounding this that. Um, were denied, I believe, by at least Las Vegas Sands, but I think maybe Wynn as well, that um, perhaps either one of those companies, Las Vegas Sands or Wynn Resorts, would purchase that land for future development. Basically, the uh, Elad, the company that bought it, um, the, the rumor <laughs> was uh, implying they basically wanted to get out uh, and cut their losses and move on. I believe both companies denied that rumor, but <clears throat> not necessarily talk about the substance of the rumor, but would it make sense for one of these companies to purchase a track like that 
Uh, and if so, you know, what would the conditions have to be for that to, for that to play out? As far as development pipeline goes, I mean, you know, we're, and, and as far as these companies stand, is something like that plausible? Do we think that uh, in a hypothetical world, could Elad jump out of this position and could another established operator jump in and take that position? Well, in, in real estate and in, you know, the most valuable land is always that next to your own. And so for a couple operators, um, certainly from that perspective, it would make sense. Um, Boyd, Wynn, and uh, Las Vegas Sands. Las Vegas Sands is already, you know, hyper-developed in its relatively small footprint. And uh, if they do have, you know, aspirations to grow, um, that's a relatively, uh, you know, a relatively close site. Um, Wynn, it would enable him to protect his, uh, you know, golf course. Um, he likes the golf course, but... You know, I, th but that would be his motivation. He could use that for future development. And for Boyd, um, as long as they're not developing the Stardust site, they could just expand and have a bigger land bank. They have enough cash that, you know, if that property was sold at a price, um, you know, they theoretically could buy it, although I, I doubt it. I think every one of those, there's a problem with. Sands is cash-constrained right now. Um, Win. Um, is not going to pay. Um, he, you know, he bought the much better, much bigger Desert Insight for uh, less than three hundred million, um, less than a decade ago. So he's certainly not going to going to fork out seven hundred million bucks or more um, to buy the new Frontier site. And I think Boyd has a pretty damn big site on Stardust anyway. And I don't think that they're that eager to, you know, add add thirty more acres. So. I think none of those make sense. I, you know, to me, any rumors that are coming out are probably being uh, fostered by the Elad side. Um, although I did read the London Times or whatever the um, British story was that had Wynn talking about buying across the street. If the price is right, Wynn would buy. Um, I have no doubt about it. He's a great buyer, and if the price was, you know, five hundred million or less, maybe he would. But I don't, you know, certainly at half of the $1.3 billion or more, I don't see him doing it. How about, oh, go ahead, Dave. How about this for a hypothetical? What if LAB just entered into a partnership with Wayne and said, here, we'll give you the land, you build something, and we'll divvy up the revenue stream somehow. And Wynn turns around and turns that over to Tim and Tom, who he's got working for him now, and says, hey, guys, here's your chance to design something cool and hip on the strip. Go for Dave, it. What do people think of that possibility? Dave, did you just did you just take a job at Wind Design and Development? That sounds like a pretty good idea. <laughs> yeah, it does. I mean to me, not obviously not looking not knowing what anybody has in the bank or anything, that's I mean, you know, hey Well typically the pattern I you know, the when you do that, Dave, um the the land holding the land owning side is contributing land and maybe a little capital towards building, but usually just the land. Um, so that would mean that Wynn and Tib and Tom would have to f fund the building of the property. So let's say Wynn throws in, you know, $400 million and they borrow the rest. Well, that presumes the ability to borrow. Um, and, you know, Wynn is the guy who likes to um, collect, 
Wynn's been in a couple of those deals, and he was always in the money collecting side, not the building and design side. Um, is it possible? I guess, but it would it would mean that the company would be using some of its um, precious cash and precious ability to borrow on you know, a competitor right across the street where they wouldn't, you know, every dollar that they pushed into that property, they'd only get 50 cents out of at their own site, they get the full dollar. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, you know, to me, I, 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 I doubt it, but it's not I, possible. I like Dave's theory. The, the only wrinkle that, that occurred to me was that LAD only has title to 18 acres on that site. The north half of the block hasn't changed hands the last time I checked uh, Clark County property records a few weeks ago. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's an interesting idea, and I, I think the, the part to me that's the most interesting is the idea of setting Tim and Tom loose into some kind of a smaller development or some kind of a sub-project where they could sort of develop, uh, even if it was a a sister brand to win. I mean, I'm just really going out on a speculation limb here, but I mean, imagine some kind of a, a sub brand that was clearly part of the win, the win brand. But at, you know, as they open Encore, they refer to it as part of the win collection. What if that was expanded to include some kind of younger hip brand that would compete with the Palms or something like that, uh, and go for that kind of a market segment? And you know, this may be the wrong site for something like that and the wrong kind of business arrangement. But I, I think in terms of a development concept, that could be a very interesting. Um, place to take things. I mean, you know, they, they brought in new young talent for, for whatever reasons they thought to fit to. But, uh, you know, I, I think it, in terms of thinking about when expanding their reach, um, you know, it's at least an interesting, interesting thing to kick around. Well, and another potential equity partner is Phil Ruffin, who's still got a, a uh, mid-sized chunk of land uh, on which Trump Tower 2 was to have been built but is unlikely to be. Oh, I already have my deposit in for that. That's not going to make it? Darn! <laughs> You'll never see that money again. <laughs> you know, one thing, and I, I really haven't written about this or talked about it, but when I talked to Wynn last, he, uh, I asked him about um, protecting the ability of his, his visitors to play golf and asked him about some of the, you know, it seems like, you know, Harris has a couple nice golf courses in Las Vegas, Rio Seco and Cascada. Um, there's a, a bankrupt and troubled golf course, um, a couple golf courses out at Lake Las Vegas. And I asked Wynn, I said, you know, might you buy one of those courses to get your play, give your players um, a place to golf when you do redevelop your property? Wynn said, um, you know, the, no, those properties, particularly Cascada and uh, and uh, Lake Las Vegas, too far from Las Vegas. He said that he's not worried about losing his golf course. Um, and uh, he said that late, the Las Vegas Country Club, too small, because um, I asked him about that as well. He said that Wynn owns 20 memberships to Southern Highlands, which is, uh, you know, I, I think a couple exits south of, the Silverton at Blue Diamond, um, Southern Highlands is down at where Las Vegas, um, where Lake Mead, or I think now it's uh, um, St. Rose meets I-15. Right, Southern right Highlands, hand, sort of. they have 20 memberships, which means they can put 80 golfers out a day 
on that course if they want to. He says they never they never use those memberships. At most, they might have four players play in there on a day, so that's sort of amusing. But he said that you know they're prepared um, for the the golfing future without their course, and they have no plans to uh, replace it right now. Um, so I you know because I, I thought that 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 would make a purchase of the new frontier site or some available property, a smart thing so that they could avoid tearing up the golf course. But I think when just, you know, he figures, he figured first, the course is going to be there for at least another five years. They have, they've really slowed down the redevelopment timeline. And so he figures, Hey, five more years. Um, and then we'll, uh, you know, start building on it. Which would use less water, the golf course uh, or the lake that Wynn proposed to build? Oh, the, uh, what, 33-acre lake? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I presume it would be a gray water lake similar to the lake at Bellagio, but he does have access to an incredible amount of water. Um, and, you know, the golf course is pretty lush, so – but I got to think the uh, the lake would be a little more intensive user. But you know, I honestly don't know. Yeah, if the Lago de Steve plan he was off as you know originally sort of envisioned, at least as roughly sketched out, I mean that's pretty massive. Though I would expect that given all of the changes in you know in not just the economy but in Las Vegas, and even if you know even if everything improves, things are always going to be a little bit different. I would assume that the original plan could easily be reconfigured to match whatever the reality is when they finally get things off the drawing board. And he's, and he's constantly doing that reevaluation. I mean, whether it's in Macau or here, I mean, I think the last time he talked to, or one of the recent times he talked to Steve Fries, he said it's going to be a convention-centered thing. I mean, but then, you know, I, you know, when I talked to him, you know, and the convention business has been a little down lately, it was more about the quality of the property and building something, you know, unseen as of yet in Las Vegas. You know, I mean, it's a lot, there's a lot of dreaming going on right now. I don't know how much of it is uh, going to ever turn into reality. Well, and they've got some proximity to the convention center that they're not exploiting right now, too. Yeah, not just one convention center. I mean, if if Boyd built theirs at Echelon, it'd be between Sands, Echelon and the Las Vegas Convention Center. Right. No, I mean, they definitely have a ton of square footage. Plus, I mean, they have over 100,000 square feet even in-house, so that's nothing to sneeze at in and of itself. Obviously, True. not as big as the big suckers, but... But much nicer. Much nicer, yes. All right, well, moving on a little bit, um, the Mirage. And we've talked about these rumors in the past, and I don't really necessarily want to focus on the rumors so much. Um, but the rumor, is, for those that are not acquainted, is that MGM Mirage is going to continue selling assets and if certain people are to be believed, the next up would be the Mirage, and the most likely suitor, as we have discussed and as others have reported, would be Penn National Gaming. Um, what I'm really more interested in is, are there other suitors that would make sense for the Mirage, uh, part A, and then part B, are there other assets that if MG Mirage is in need to divest of some things to um, come up with some cash, are there other assets that make them that make more sense for them to for them to unload. Now, to be clear, MG Mirage has said that while they will engage any serious offer, um, they have nothing to announce. So read into that what you may and, or may not. But um, they're not announcing anything specifically. 
But, uh, you know, what do you guys think? I mean, are there other assets that make more sense, or are, is there another company besides Penn National that could pull it off? Well, they just took a gargantuan write-down on the Mandalay Mile, uh, plus the, the gold strike in Tunica, which is kind of like a throw-in. But uh, that, that, to me, that seemed tantamount to, to painting a big for-sale sign across that, that stretch of the strip. Uh, interestingly, they did not write down any of the value on any of the assets that are contiguous to City Center 1 or you know, City Center 2, City Center North, whatever you want to call it. Um, so it seemed like, you know, if it's true that, I mean, I, I find it easy to believe that they're, that they're getting offers for Bellagio. Steve Wynn says that Penn made an offer for it, Penn denies it. And for the Mirage, we know that Ruffin crunched the numbers on that because he said so and decided he couldn't afford it. But, it, you know, the sense I get is that, that MGM doesn't want to part with those two center strip properties and is kind of saying, hey, hey, look down here at the south end. We got some good stuff. It's priced to move. Come on. Make us an offer. Do you guys agree? What do you think? I, mean, I, I totally disagree. Um, I think that what MGM is doing, and I think there, there is some serious price negotiation. MGM obviously wants to maximize what they're going to get. Um, I think that, you know, if Penn would be happy with Mirage at, you know, 1.2, 1.3, whatever billion, um, you know, it, the, it would be sold. Um, I think that there is a difference um, in, you know, uh, Penn probably wants to drive a better deal. Personally, I think that that property um, that that Penn is trying to buy, um, and I, you know, this is this is pretty idle speculation. I don't have any uh, inside knowledge here, but um, it wouldn't surprise me if Penn is trying to buy Bellagio. Um, I think that you know they have 1.4 billion in cash. Um, that's probably a cash price, uh, you know, if they package it somewhat near what um, what uh, Ruffin did for Treasure Island. Now, you know, seven times cash flow, let's say they get a little bit above that, um, but, you know, cash flow is going to be less this year. Um, it, it was a 300, you know, above $300 million cash flow property, let's say it's a little bit below that in a, in a tougher time. Um, if they say, you know, eight times cash flow, they're still not too far north of $2 billion. Um, if Penn National could come up with $1.5 billion cash, $750 million in a note, uh, you know, or in, in its own debt offering, you know, Bellagio, it, it, that kill that kills two birds with one stone for MGM Mirage. It it eliminates the prospect of having to compete for their top-end customers once they open Aria, and as well as raises a bunch of cash. Um, but I don't think that that means they want to keep Mirage. I think that they would sell Mirage also. Um, I think that uh, you know Alex Yemenigian, um, is a perspective would be a prospective buyer, um, probably others out there. I wouldn't rule out, uh, um, you know, Mohegan Sun or um, one of the, uh, you know, or Foxwoods or, you know, there's other there's other folks um, out there in the world who 
maybe still have access to cash, but um, I think that's a that's a possibility. Um, Bo Revage, I think, another possibility. And what you're seeing, you know, MGM has already sold two golden nuggets and a treasure island, and and I personally think that you're seeing the um, elimination of the Mirage Resorts properties from the company. They've had a good run of pulling cash out of them. Um, you know, I told Alan Feldman of MGM Mirage a, a week or two ago that he's going to be the last Mirage asset remaining at the company. Um, <laughs> and, uh, um, and and I really believe that that, you know, there's there's been a long lingering sense of, you know, a lot of people in, in journal, journalism, a lot of the casino industry people felt that it was the Mirage Resorts acquisition that sort of made MGM Mirage what it was. And I think that the MGM side of that equation, which obviously included Kerkorian, but Jim Murren most prominently, yeah. um, has always resented that. And, you know, as soon as he takes over, you know, after already having gotten rid of the Golden Nuggets a long time ago, they get rid of Treasure Island, and certainly people sense that Mirage is on the block. Um, I think they're all on the block. And uh, so, you know, I, that's that. You know, that's idle speculation on my part, but uh, you know, it's what I think is uh, a decent possibility. Well, he can. I'm sorry. I've got a small piece of idle speculation myself. I stayed in the Mirage last night, and uh, I can confirm for the second time that it's an old property, despite <laughs> the gloss, the lip gloss, and makeup, and. Uh, other beautification efforts that have gone on the ground floor, uh, the rooms, the room towers, even though they've cleaned those things up, there are, I believe, inherent structural problems with that building, uh, particularly as it relates to the air. Uh, those rooms, every, uh, they stink, they reek, and it is always just stuffy and hard to breathe in there no matter what. And this is considering they just redesigned the rooms. And Hunter had that, so I, when I told him this, he had pretty much confirmed that he had the same issue, like, uh, within weeks after them rolling out these brand new rooms, they were already smelling like smoke, and they should not be doing that. There's, there's, there's a problem there. You can tell, you can feel that it's actually an older property. Uh, you can tell sort of by looking at the waitresses, you know, the quality of the girls is not as good as, as at the other places. Uh, now, in, in terms of the idle speculation here, the, I, I, I remember hearing on some uh, cornball TV show, it might have been Travel Channel, who knows, where uh, maybe it was the Tim and Tom show. But, uh, oh, my God. You, uh, you, you learn everything about what happens in Las Vegas by talking to a valet. So I went and talked to the valet, uh, one of the valets at a various time there, and I said, so, did they sell it? And he said, oh, the Mirage? Yeah. And told me that people have been there, they've been inspecting the property over the last couple of weeks, they're waiting for some time to announce it. It's essentially a done deal. Whether or not you believe a valet guy, who knows, but he they see the people coming in and see the people coming out and see people poking around and looking at things and talk to everybody. So that's a little tiny little piece of uh, idle speculation courtesy of the guys who park the cars. Just as a counterpoint to that, the valet also once told me that Siegfried and Roy, Roy had been replaced by a robot uh, about 10 years into their run because he had died. 
So I'm not sure if that's true or not. Yeah. But at least the Roy story. But no, you know, yeah. it's, 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 I know what you mean as far as getting some ground intel. And of course, there's a ton. The casino industry especially seems to love this rumor mongering, especially among the, uh, you know, frontline employees. But, um, you know, obviously, uh, a rumor that has had as much traction as this Mirage rumor, uh, it's I think it would be rare to see this much uh, fluttering about without some grain of truth behind it, whether or not the specifics are in any way correct. Uh, you know, even if a deal even doesn't come to pass, someone's been kicking the tires or else we wouldn't see this much of a flare-up. Yeah. And they've been kicking him pretty hard. Yeah. Mohegan Sun is really strapped right now, but Yemenidian's got some Canadian backers who were really flashing the cash in Illinois last month. So, And he's also... They also attempted to uh, get a piece of the Tropicana, so he's not to be ruled out. There's definitely some players, and I mean, I think if you know if people are in a position to do it. But the second part of my question, I think, still stands: Are there other assets besides even? What about non-Las Vegas assets? You have thrown about Borgata or Borgata is low-hanging fruit. Uh, so okay. I mean, do we think it's it's you know? And what I mean, I guess Macau is probably a position they don't want to cede. But, um, you know, I mean, are those more likely? The problem with selling in Macau is you would have to sell it to somebody who already is a uh, concession holder. So the number of people you can uh, sell it to is basically five at that point, unless you count, like, some of the partners. Or somebody could buy it and then hire somebody else, but that hire somebody else to operate, like uh, like the Mpel quote-unquote, deal to do uh, the... Uh, Macau Studio City thing. So that adds a whole nother layer of complexity to just dumping something off like the Beau Rivage or what have you. Well, right. Beau Rivage is another obvious example. I mean, it's a market that is sort of, I mean, questionable if Mirage Resorts ever should have gone into it in the first place, especially with the property as elaborate and extravagant as Beau Rivage. Um, you know, it obviously makes money despite its propensity to be blown over. But, um, you know, it, these things to me seem more... Well, I would have guessed, just intrinsically, that they would be more likely assets that they would try to divest before the Mirage, especially since it's half of the company's name. But, hey, maybe I'm wrong. Well, Beau Rivage, I, I, after they've invested so much money in that, that property, I, and it is still one of, the, one of the top markets in the United States, it's, I, I, find, I, mean, I find it hard to believe they would divest that as opposed to some of the you know, so, uh, some of the rinky-dinkier. But they put $100 million into the Mirage, and they're yeah. talking about getting rid of that. Yeah, and then as far as Detroit, they've got a, a new facility yeah. that is that is basically half the market right there. I mean, why, you know, talk about a cash cap. Again, why would they, you know, it would, it would defy reason, it seems to me, just to walk away from it. No, I mean, I think there's definitely you, there's um, some logic in that. Unless there's real desperation. We no, have I, I think that it may be viewed, if if we take a step back from the property look and more as a market look, this is MGM Mirage who was so proud three, four, five years ago. They would always say, look, all our competitors, Harris and you know all these other folks, they want to be in every market. You know, MGM would say, we don't. We believe in Las Vegas. We love Las Vegas. Las Vegas, we have 10 properties on the strip, you know, and, and 
you know, I think they, you know, they've sort of adjusted to the reality of Las Vegas as when you are market dependent, when that market takes a big hit, your company gets crushed. And, uh, you know, they're pulling chips off the table in Las Vegas. And I think they're pulling them off fast. And, uh, you know, I mean, you know, whether it's, I mean, I said before, I think some of it seems their choice of properties seems sort of connected to the, to the mirage acquisition or maybe, uh, you know, <laughs> sale eventually, um, piece by piece. Um, I think they're trying to get some of, you know, they have this huge investment coming up in Las Vegas. They're uniquely tied or uniquely um, committed to the city. And I think they're just trying to get, you know, some of that over committal um, reduced. Um, as far as what Dave said about the Mandalay uh, Mile properties, um, leaving Circus aside, but uh, Mandalay, Luxor, Excalibur, I just don't think, you know, Luxor is connected to Mandalay Bay. I don't think that those two properties um, get disconnected. Um, you know, Excalibur and Circus have both been taking a hit over the last year. The bottom properties hurt much worse than the uh, top properties in terms of room occupancy, in terms of average daily rate, in terms of uh, casino win. Um, I just, but I, I still, I don't see those properties on the market right now. I mean, everything's, you know, obviously on the market for a price, but I just think those properties remain connected, intact, and part of the portfolio um, for the foreseeable future. It seems though practically, oh, sorry, Dave, I'll just make this quick, but practically everything is being potentially sacrificed on the altar of city center. <laughs> right. That's true. I mean, they definitely are betting the future of the company on city center. And, you know, granted, it's an impressive facility and a pretty striking vision. But uh, if for some reason things don't go the way that they planned, it, it, it's going to be a pretty big bet. I mean, it's all on black at this point. But when you look at the big moves in the history of Las Vegas, um, you know, Steve Wynn moving or, you know, start with uh, Jay Sarno building Circus Circus. Then you have Steve Wynn, you know, leaving the confines of downtown for Atlantic City and then, you know, making a big profit there and taking his money and uh, milk, the money milk and raised and building the Mirage. These huge gambles are what has really created the, uh, you know, the leapfrogs we've seen on the Strip. Um, you know, I think Wynn's investment in Bellagio. Um, certainly Wall Street didn't react kindly to it. And it probably, uh, along with Beau Rivage, cost him Mirage Resorts. But after, you know, it didn't take long before Bellagio was proving all the doubters wrong, throwing off $300 million a year for nearly a full decade. Um, so, you know, I think that, in you know, you'd have to be a fool to question those moves, whether it was Caesar's Palace, whether it was Mirage, and whether in retrospect and Bellagio um, I'm not saying you have to be a fool to question city center, but I think it's that kind of a of a uh, generational shift. And MGM is like those prior owners, leveraging their company, you know, putting, you know, really making a big bet that they have captured the future. Um, we'll see if that's true, but um, it certainly is a pretty big bet. I, I hope for the future of Las Vegas that Jim Murn isn't the first one to make such a big bet and have to be rolled out of town. 
I've got to get out of here, but I want to say kind of in as my parting shot, you know, the interesting thing is that we remember all the hits and we forget all the misses. You know, um, there have been a lot of expensive failures in the strip. Aladdin, in all of its different incarnations, was never really successful. Places like the Dunes, you know, when it opened in 55, it ran into trouble right away, and it never really was never really huge, a huge moneymaker. So I think that, you know, there is some precedent for places not doing as well as is projected. But, but, but they yeah. were Dave, were, were any of those, you know, like the most expensive properties at the time, like those other ones? No, they weren't. But um, doing a little bit of research in the circus, and it was, Circus Circus was pretty expensive, and it was considered something totally different. Sure. No hotel. Um, but a lot of people are saying, well, if this succeeds, this is going to change the face of the industry forever. And in the way it was originally conceived, it didn't succeed. So, you know, True. I guess maybe having been inured in that for the past month or so, I'm a little bit more um, in tune with the things that don't work. But, you know, yeah, no, none of them was, none of those are really proposals being hugely expensive. But, you know, you look at a place like the Riviera, too, that had a lot of financial problems. When it first opened, it was the first big high rise. I was considering something new. But, you know, definitely nothing in the scale of City Center, which I hope is going to be really successful. And I think we all do. Yeah, and that's all i got to say, guys. i got to get out of here. And, uh, Thanks, Dave. Have a, great, have a great week. Thank you, Dave. Take care, Dave. Okay, so long. All right, see you, Dave. We're going to do one more topic, I think, and we're going to talk a little bit about Encore because – that's why we're here. Um, Chuck and I are here to be bribed by the Wind Resource Organization. Um, they uh, invited uh, some some media, the ones with less scruples, to come and uh, enjoy the facility <laughs> and uh, sample uh, some of the uh, you know some of the stuff that we may not have tried. Um, you know, just on a more serious note, I think uh, most of our listeners probably know that both Chuck and I have actually already both stayed here um, on our own accord. Uh, sort of anonymously, so to speak. Um, so I don't feel too guilty about uh, about coming back on someone else's dime to check out a, a few more things. Um, but you know, everything uh, everything that I do see is sort of framed within that. Uh, I haven't perceived personally a- a- any indication that um, anything is different at all in terms of my experience. But uh, you know, for the sake of the listeners, I'll probably just uh, get that out there so you know. That this uh, most of the stuff on this trip was sort of courtesy of uh, Wind Resorts, um, but you know all that said, uh, we've got a couple days of activities and we're just sort of getting into it. But this morning we did a couple of hours worth of tours, and the first was a, a design tour, which is something similar to what we did in December. This time we opted we opted to take the tour with Jerry Beal, who is actually succeeding Roger Thomas as head of interiors for Wind Design and Development later this year. Um, the tour, and Chuck, you know, you can chime in if you'd like, but I mean, the tour, I think, was fairly similar to what we covered in December, a tour that both Dave and David were on with us. I mean, it was basically the same sort of stops, um, and, uh, you know, it was interesting to hear Jerry's perspective. He, he has not worked on Encore as much as Roger Thomas did, so he had less of the sort of insider perspective um, that, that Roger did when we went out with him. The really interesting part for me was the second half of the tour, which was this back-of-house tour where Andrew Pascal took us through uh, the back-of-house areas. They, did a, they, they went out of their way to sort of explain how they emphasize service, how they take care of their employees, um, and some of the interesting departments, such as horticulture, where they obviously spend a lot of money decorating the public areas. 
um, the uh, the way that they handle raw food. And Par- Paul Bartolotta talked about how he sources the fish for his restaurant at Wynn Las Vegas, which was actually pretty interesting, considering that you know he's flying stuff in from halfway around the world and all of this all of these support mechanisms that are required to make that happen. Um, you know, personally, I recorded the the tour audio. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping to clean it up a little bit and post it for listeners that are interested um, because it is pretty interesting, both the Jerry Beal tour and the Andrew, pa- Andrew Pascal tour. Uh, some parts are a little unintelligible. Anyway, long screed over. Um, I, you know, I, I was fascinated by it. Chuck, how, what did you think? I mean, you were along for the ride. Okay, well, I'd have to say that uh, for starters, just to go all the way back to where you first began, whether you pay for it or don't, the Kool-Aid tastes good. I love Kool-Aid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in terms, in terms of the tour, it was great. It was, it was, uh, it, it was quite a bit different than the Roger tour. The Roger tour was very, 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 very ridiculously detailed, uh, pedantic to the point of, you know, it was like walking around the museum with the guy who did all the art. You know, he really went in there and explained to you the balance of the colors, you know, and the why this fabric was chosen and the origination of everything. This was kind of like going, you know, touring the museum with the artist's buddy. You know, (laughs) he knew a lot about some of the things. You know, he wasn't really all that detailed or all that deep about about a lot of the stuff. And after having come to both, you know, I I personally, I preferred the Roger Tours. Quite a bit more uh, exciting and and, uh, brain-busting. The, the the back house stuff was fascinating. Going going into the employee cafeteria, I thought was was amazing. It was astounding how uh, it looks better than most uh, buffets you're going to find at other resorts. You know, maybe up to a four star or three star buffet. You know, it's clean. It had like interesting lighting and stuff and. The food was fantastic. They had grilled mahi-mahi, you know, and, like, all sorts of really great stuff, and people were just chowing down and and, and that kind of thing. Uh, Walking through, uh, we had food served by uh, Paul Bartolotta, which was fantastic. Uh, They showed us the lobster cases and walked inside the coolers and saw huge warehouses filled with baccarat tables and furnishings and the little boxes that the the dealers who were too short stand on top of, you know, stacked up inventory-wise. It was really amazing, you know. It was, it was uh, from a, from Joe Schmo or whatever, Chuck the Gambler, I guess would be my uh, term, you know, to just suddenly get thrown into the bottom of this casino and see how these things work is really, from a fan point of perspective, a guy who just digs the whole casino thing, it was pretty damn exciting. Well, you know, I, I've been also able to tour – uh, back a house at the Mirage and at Bellagio, um, and at least in the last the last cases of Bellagio and and Wynn, uh, both designed by you know Deruder De Butler, who's worked as head of architecture for Wynn for some time, and you know it's no coincidence that they're very similar. Um, you can tell, and I, I've even heard people say this that they've made it an emphasis on in not just front of house design, but in terms of you know beautiful design, but back of house functional design. The ability to move things quickly from one side of the property to the other efficiently, um, especially when it comes to something like room service, where there's you know the uh, the situation with hot food, uh, they've thought these things out, they've perfected them over time as they've built new hotels, 
they've added into the to the point where at Win you've got you know I think three sets of service elevators, not even counting the guest elevators, so that they can move baggage and room service separately from guests, and they can you make it move baggage and room service separately because they sort of those two contingent have sort of separate missions and uh, you know may not be compatible. It's just the a lot of people don't realize the factory that is underneath a lot of these places. And the back-of-house situation, especially when it's run like a pretty efficient machine. Now, granted, everybody back there knew that they were doing media tours today. So, you know, you got to – there were some, even signs around saying, you know, don't run into our guests. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it looked like a pretty well-honed machine. And it is interesting to peek behind the curtain a little bit now and then, especially for people – you know, the kind of people that listen to this show are the kind of people that – would be interested to see how this stuff works, especially on the scale that we're talking about here. I mean, they were talking about 4,000 covers a day for room service for combined win and encore. And, you know, that's in addition to all the meals they serve in the restaurants that are open to the public. That, that's an incredible scale. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And the fact that they're able to do that with, uh, you know, at a level of service that is comparable to a hotel that has 200 rooms is you know, and, you know, some people may argue the finer points of that comparison, but, you know, it's in the ballpark no matter no matter where you're sitting. It, it's uh, it's impressive. And to see all that stuff in action here was, was a lot of fun. And I think people will enjoy the audio. I don't really know if, if there's much much of a discussion around that, but I just thought it was very interesting um, to, see, to see them do their work. And the other thing that I noticed is how proud a lot of these employees were about their stuff. They had the section heads for the different areas talk about, their work, whether it was horticulture or, or even even the inventory control guy, they seemed like they were genuinely jazzed about how things were set up, and they liked their job. So it was it was very interesting. The service ethic is very is very good here, which stood in stark contrast to to what I ran into at Palazzo Monday night, which was we ate at uh, the Grand Lux Cafe, and it was one of the worst. Service clusterfucks, pardon my French, that I've I've ever encountered anywhere, and they really didn't didn't seem all that that apologetic about it either. So it's it's quite a relief to come here and actually see people who seem seem motivated. Although I wonder what well, what what the vibe would have been like if they'd taken you through the dealer's room. Well, of course that you know the situation with the tipping situation on the wind side. Of course, you know, demoralized a lot of the dealers. What was apparent from this, getting to the service aspect was how much they stress it as a company. Um, you know, there are all, all kinds. There's all kinds of signage downstairs about how to interact with customers. Um, you know, encouraging employees to provide the level of service that I think they're hoping that they will. And they're so you know they're clearly reinforcing that every step of the way as much as they can. Um, and you know whether or not. You believe that's apparent in the front of the house? That's, I guess, for every guest to decide. But um, as an organization, that that at least in it, as when you know when the heads of the organization do their interviews, they're constantly saying how important service is and how important their frontline employees are. They're definitely pushing that message all the way down the chain and trying to engage their employees and re- and remind them that you know that's what it's all about. I mean, and Wynn has done that for twenty, you know, for decades. I mean, he has always emphasized. Um, employees, um, but I am interested. You guys just um, both uh, mentioned 
um, dealers. Um, I have not interacted with the dealers on the floor at Encore. Um, have any of you? And uh, how would you uh, since you know because they're doing the uh, same system that right. Win uh, instituted over at Win Las Vegas. What's your uh, take on the attitude there? I have. I've asked them about this. I've actually asked dealers on both sides about this. My understanding, um, and I don't know if this is official policy, whether it's a union thing or whether what, but on the win side, I was told several times that they're not supposed to talk about it with customers. And I don't know if that's just because it's sort of an unpleasantness that they don't really want to bring up. But um, on the win side, they were very reluctant to discuss it. The Encore side, um, I've sort of had the opposite. I think people that are on the Encore side came on knowing that this was the policy and are just accepting it, and they seem fine with it. Uh, I've had not, not, you know, not that I haven't had good experiences on the wind side, but both of the both of these trips to Encore, and, and not just dealers, but all of the front of house employees have been overwhelmingly friendly. I mean, just sort of seem excited about life to the point where I'm walking by, I'm walking down past a craft pit that's empty. The floor person. Yeah, I'm not stopping at the table, but the floor person yells out to me and says, "Hey, how's it going today?" Like, <laughs> like as if he knows me or something. I mean, it was just it was just strange. I mean, it's nice, but it's you know it, it's sort of out of the ordinary from walking through a lot of other places where the dealers won't even make eye contact with you. So it you know I've definitely noticed a change. I don't know if it's you know the place is just barely open and they're still really excited about working here. They have not yet been crushed by the specter of reality, but um, they seem. They seem happy to be here. I've heard no discontent, no gr- sort of grumbling under the breath that I had that I have heard from wind dealers that went through that entire ordeal. Well, the the dealers on the wind side, management really dropped the hammer on some who were discussing the the tip situation uh, with customers. So that would account for the reluctance. And unfortunately, because of the stalemate in the uh, union negotiations over there. You're getting the less experienced dealers at, at Encore. You're getting the extra boards and people recruited from outside because, well, what, you know, according to the, you know, the latest information I had, all the existing wind dealers were frozen in place as long as that negotiation was going on. I mean, now it's not like they hired the dregs of society for oh, to no. be Encore dealers. These people, and I think that's what um, Hunter hit the nail on the head there. It just makes a huge difference to get hired and know what you're getting hired in for. Um, it's not like, you know, the Encore dealers are going to make a pretty penny relative to, you know, most high-end dealers in the city, um, and they'll know what they're getting. And I think that, you know, and Wynn was always, you know, clear that he, you know, that was what he apologized for. Um, he was unwilling to go, to revert to the former policy, but he he said that you know he understands why uh, folks were so mad because he sort of pulled the rug out from under him. He's hiring him for A and then saying, you know what, six months later I'm switching to B. Sorry, and and you know I mean nobody would like that. And uh, so if there's you know there's obviously lingering discontent there. What surprises me is I really think, and, and I you know, wrote about this years ago, is that the biggest impact has been around the rest of the city. Um, there are you know, dealers up and down the strip at competing casinos who, to me, are much more you know, upset about it than the wind dealers even are. Um, you know, and, and 
Um, I, you know, when you go to Caesar's Palace, when you go to Bellagio, when you go to the, you know, some of the nice places of the Strip, those dealers are exceptionally angry about it. Um, and uh, you know, that's and, and so and, you know, none of those companies have made any move in that direction. But it's funny it's, you mention that because I, I've noticed the same thing in conversations with dealers at Bellagio and and even at Caesar's um, that they they're sort of aghast with the concept. Much more so than I've than I've seen even at Win, but you know well, the other thing that I noticed today, and I think Chuck and I were talking about this as we were walking through, after spending time in Encore, and uh, you know I'm an unabashed fan of Win Las Vegas, but it 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 sort of looks like yesterday almost. I mean it's amazing how different it is when you walk from one side of the property to the other, and I just mean I think you know a lot of that is the natural light aspect. It's so much darker in there. Um, a lot of the carpets and furnishings are a little bit older, and you know some of them may be scheduled to be cycled in and out. And it's just, but the contrast between the two sides of the property, the wind side just looks older. And I, I, you know, I never would have imagined that that would have been possible that that they could build Encore and that and or build something else, and it would look so distinctly different in terms of just you know it's just its feel, and it's sort of a lot of intangibles rolled up into that whole well, experience. The wind side is more derivative. I mean, I came in the whole, came in on the the wind on the way here. I came in on the the wind retail mall and basically traversed the whole property. When I was when I was going down the the retail mall in wind, I my mind I was preoccupied with something. Was, uh, my mind returned to planet Earth. There was a moment when I thought I was in Bellagio. I realized, oh no no no, I'm in wind. <laughs> but it's it it does I, I still even after what three almost four years it just still feels like Bellagio too to me over there. Well, I, I mean you could and, and similarly you could say Encore is Win Las Vegas too. I mean I there think. are similarities, there are changes. It's a constant evolution, um, and uh, you know I mean it, I think I think that's definitely true. You know, it, taking something as simple as parking garages. Driving, you know, if you drive through the Mirage um, and, uh, you know, you compare that to the other parking garages that existed in Las Vegas at the time, Mirage, a clear improvement, but then you drive from there to Bellagio and you see how much simpler and much more intuitive that garage is. And then you drive to the Wind Garage, again, improvement. Um, You know, and, and, you know, I think that... um, Certainly the light aspect is the thing that most people seem to notice. But I think Hunter's right. Also, you know, new stuff looks better, smells better, you know, feels better. Um, and, uh, and you know, it's still interesting to you in a way that something that you've seen 50 times isn't. So, um, you know, I think that is – it's still uh, pretty cool to have a place that's, that's that new, um, you know, right there for you. Well, I'm I'm very I mean I I can't get over just the 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 subtle uh, proliferation of sensations. I mean, this is not one of those Vegas casinos where it grabs you by the lapels and shakes you. You're in a casino, goddammit! Enjoy yourself, or else. But you know, there are just so many so many you know colors and textures and and nuances to the property. I mean, I really do think and. And I think I've gotten pretty hard to impress by this point in my life. I do think that there is a clear separation between Encore and every other place in town. 
um, and especially on the strip. I mean, I really, you know, people email me and say, you know, well, I mean, is it is it worth it? I'm going to be staying somewhere else, but is it worth it to check out Encore when I'm in town? Absolutely. I mean, this this is a must-see property. Did you not feel that way about Wynn when Wynn opened? No, I was I was underwhelmed with Wynn, and I thought there were a lot of little things about it that betrayed signs of last-minute haste. Um, I think you know I was I was at a convention the first I think the first week it was open, and I think I was not the only person who was a little bit you know who thought expected more from a Steve Wynn property. By the way, I'd say it's must see. I wouldn't necessarily say must eat because. Even breakfast for two people can easily run you to sixty dollars at at the quote unquote twenty four hour cafe, it's, which is it's not cheap. I mean, it's definitely a very expensive. nice restaurant. It's definitely expensive. There's absolutely no doubt about it. But I, you know, I'll, I'll reiterate what I think I've said in the past. And if there are listeners that want to try Encore and think it might be outside of their budget, I would suggest that they double check uh, now because this is the cheapest it's ever going to be. Uh, and, you know, the restaurant prices aren't really deflated, but the rooms certainly are. And if you can save some money on the room, maybe you can treat yourself to a nice dinner. Uh, this is the cheapest you're going to find Encore probably ever. Mm-hmm. And um, take advantage of it while it lasts because it won't, and the prices will go up. And, um, you know. And let, me, let, let, let me say that you, you should utilize the sites that all three of these gentlemen are on the phone with. Um, have whether it's Rate Vegas, whether it's Vegas Tripping, whether it's Las Vegas Advisor and their and their website. Um, you know, if you if you take advantage of sort of consumer intelligence, um, what other people are reporting, what their experts are saying, and this incredibly you know competitive time where where the demand factor isn't rising to the level of supply you are in such an advantageous position as a consumer um you know whether it's whether it's food credits at restaurants when you make a hotel reservation um whether it's two for one deals for entertainments or clubs um, you know, it's just entertainment or club tickets, those kind of things. You know, you really can make your dollar go so much farther. Obviously, midweek stays, you know, non-convention weeks, um, you know, slower weeks um, can be even even more savings. Um, and so, you know, it really, for for those folks who, you know, don't regularly come to Las Vegas, this is as good a time as there's been in the last, you know, eight or nine years. Yeah, I would I would say to consumers, reverse the usual equation as far as a new property. Stay here and make it your base of operations for fanning out to do everything else as opposed to staying at the quote-unquote bargain place and just visiting the... See, I would almost say stay at the luxury place and luxuriate in it. Save your visits to all the other stuff. For when when you're you know when you're staying someplace that you want to get out of, I mean to me if you're spending you know 150 bucks a night and staying at one of the best two or three hotels in Las Vegas, why dilute the experience with MGM Grand or you know any other place? Why not you know just sort of luxuriate in that? five or four star experience and then the next time when you have to stay at Luxor, go visit Bellagio, go visit Caesar's Palace or whatever. 
the, the, the suites, by the way, some of them do stretch the semantic definition of the term to its meaning, yes. to its limit. No doubt. Like the, the you know, the, the, there are two rooms which where the wall is basically a big screen TV set. But I will say that, that, that it's, it was a more, um, the, the, it was a more, it was the, a much more, I can't find the right adjective, but it was just a much more relaxing um, experience than I've, than I've had in, in larger, theoretically more sweet-like uh, rooms here or even some, some pretty nice properties elsewhere. Well, you know, the other thing to keep in mind, and I, I don't, this is not necessarily a uh, LVCVA commercial, but, um, you know, this kind of room in another city, if you want to go visit New York or San Francisco, um, good luck finding anything even close to this at this oh, yeah. price point. Uh, you will never find it. So there's that unique value proposition that's offered by Las Vegas when it comes to luxury hotel accommodations that you won't find in any other city that I know of anywhere in the world. So, you know, this is a place that you can come and relax and have a good time and sort of even if, you know, even if you're going back and um, <clears throat> you're, uh, you know, things aren't perfect at home, you can come and luxuriate and Beautiful Las Vegas. Come to the desert and have a great time. It's, it's very serene. It is. Gentlemen, I think we've done it for today. And I'm going to send a bill to the LVCVA for that last bit. Um, thank you guys for being here. Thanks for Dave Schwartz, who had to go, but I really appreciate it. I'm going to go around. Actually, Jeff, we'll start with you since you're on the phone. Jeff, if people want to track you down, if they want to read more of this pontificating, where can they find you? Oh, well, I, I'm at uh, inbusinesslasvegas.com. I would like to real quick, I wanted to make a little prediction today. Um, I saw in the uh, a couple of different blogs that posted, we got a press release, Planet Hollywood, uh, their CEO left, Mike Mecca. Um, he's well-known in town. He used to run Green Valley Ranch. Um, he had run Crown Melbourne, Greek Town before that, and has been a longtime uh, manager for uh, – the guys who uh, bought Aladdin out of bankruptcy. Um, and uh, no one's really speculated on it, so I'm, gonna, and, and I'm going to uh, do it here first. Um, I think Mike Mecca is going to run Crown's Las Vegas operations, and this is, once again, pure idle speculation, but his prior relationship with the company, his experience with locals' casinos here, as well as non-Las Vegas U.S. markets, I think make him an obvious choice, the fact that he left to pursue other opportunities and that open position at Crown um, all adds up in my head. So before he announces it, I'm going to say that uh, there's my bet. There you go. Well, I would like to announce that uh, Robert Earl has picked me to run part of his operating division over at Planet Hollywood, and that's he a should. joke. But that's a joke for anyone that uh, knows my history. I, right, right. Um, all right, so continuing around the table, David McKee, where can people track you down? Oh, LasVegasAdvisor.com, where uh, you can also – uh, video poker players out there, Bob Dancer's Video Poker for Winners is on the shelves now. So if, if you've been waiting for that, wait no longer. All right, good. If you're a video poker player, definitely go pick it up. Chuck Monster, where can people track you down? Uh, at the bar downstairs for the next couple days. All right, bardownstairs.com, next couple days. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my name's Hunter, and I run RayVegas.com. Thank you to all. Have a great weekend. We'll be back in a couple weeks.